Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that we have the opportunity to come together and in a world that is so full of uncertainty and unknowns, Lord, that your word continues to be a constant for us. And so we just ask you to please allow this time to be an opportunity for us to grow stronger in a story that most of us probably already know, but continuing to grow closer to you and understanding how you continue to work in all things for good. You don't abandon us. Nothing surprises you. And so we just ask you to fill us with your spirit in this time. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we are kicking off a new series. Uh, Hopefully most of you recognize that little ditty. Uh, as uh, we're walking up today. Uh, We're starting the Fresh Prince, talking about Joseph, uh, and we will be in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis today. Just to forewarn you, that is the only thing you will see on the screen, so if you like to follow along, now's the chance to go ahead and open up your Bibles. Uh, We'll be on page 38, not even hitting triple digits, very easy to find towards the beginning. Uh, And I'm still talking because I really want you to open up your Bible. Uh, So go ahead, just so you have an idea of where to start because uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to be spending a lot of time uh, in this story of Joseph, talking about it, talking about what's going on there, what God is doing, um, and just growing in that. So while you are opening your Bibles, uh, allow me to share a little story with you. On July 19, 1989, Flight 232 had gone through all ground checks and cleared all necessary communications as it had done thousands of times before. 298 passengers nestled into their seats, listening to that all-familiar speech about seatbelts and oxygen masks and anything else you can imagine. The captain came on over the speaker to announce takeoff, and a few moments later, the plane leveled off at 37,000 feet. The flight attendants began their standard beverage service. On all accounts, it was a totally normal day for just around 300 people. But exactly one hour and seven minutes after takeoff, to quote many of the survivors, all hell broke loose. The number two engine mounted on the tail of the DC-10 exploded, immediately appearing on the flight panel as a failed hydraulic system. This would normally concern a pilot, but not alarm him, because every DC-10 was equipped with three independent hydraulic systems so that a failure of one would not disable the plane. The only vulnerable spot to these three systems was a small four-foot square space in the tail section where all of them converged. Even less of a concern, the likelihood of all three systems failing was a billion to one. It never happened. But on July 19, 1989, the impossible did happen. At 3.09 p.m., the pilot and crew experienced total hydraulic failure. It seemed like nothing was functioning. Controlling the plane became a living nightmare. And on top of that, the brakes were broken. The on-ground steering was unresponsive. Everything was malfunctioning. The crew had no control. And even if they managed to land, they had no idea how to bring the plane to a controlled stop. Flight 232 was doomed. Several minutes later, the crew finally found a functioning control. They could turn slightly to the right by using the thrusts of the remaining engines. They were able to turn towards a small airport in Sioux City, Iowa, and managed to even maneuver the crippled aircraft towards the ground. As they approached, the right wing touched down first, sending the plane wheeling over the ground and bursting into flames. But when it was all said and done, 187 lives were saved. After the crash, the National Transportation Safety Board presented the findings from their investigation of the cause of the disaster. A fan disk in the initially exploding engine was the result of the failure. That resulted in sending shrapnel ripping through the tail section of the plane, severing the hydraulic lines in the smallest but most vulnerable section of the aircraft. But this is not where the investigation stopped, because the fan disk for jet engines is so specialized 
There were extensive paper trails that led investigators back to the ingot of titanium from which it was made and the forging process used. It was determined that this process performed years before led to the fatal crash of Flight 232. When parts for a jet are formed, molten titanium is subjected to hammering force and intense pressure of no less than 50,000 tons. The purpose is to eliminate all trace of any sort of gas bubble that might be trapped inside. What was discovered and presented in their, their report issued later was that a tiny, minuscule amount of nitrogen was left in that particular piece of titanium from which the fan disk was made. Microscopic pockets were formed inside the titanium that would eventually lead to metal fatigue and the disintegration of the fan disk. It took over 15,000 takeoff and landing cycles for this to happen. But on this 15,503rd, the almost invisible flaws present in the formation process of that fan disk led to disaster. So the moral of the story is flaws in the formative process, even the most minuscule and insignificant ones, can lead to disaster. And so what we're going to be focused on today is how Joseph's formative process could easily have led him to disaster. But other people around him had the same sort of issues. And they ran into the same sort of junk and they turned to pretty horrible ideas. But several weeks ago, or maybe several months ago, um, hopefully most of you still have your baton that Pastor Josh gave to you, and we talked about the idea of the sins of your ancestors being passed down to your children, to their children, to their children, and so on and so forth. And the way to stop that was you had to stop the cycle. If your family was subject to alcoholism, you were the one who had to cut that off. If you were the one who was constantly quitting everything that you were presented with that was a challenge, you were the one who had to make that choice. But it required a lot from you. The easiest option is to just give in. But what God calls you to do is make choices that may require you to ignore what the world is telling you is right and to follow his will instead of your own. And so as we get into Joseph, we're going to see exactly what this looks like. But before we get into it, before we get into chapter 37, which is on page 38, and if you have not opened to it yet, now's your chance. Again, that's just how important it is. Before we get into that, I want to give you just a little, a few trivia facts, some things that uh, you can use as you're going forward, as you're hopefully sharing this with all of your friends and family um, about Joseph's story that show how significant he is. First off, Joseph's story is the absolute longest in Genesis. Uh, if you look at the book of Genesis, typically it can be summed up into eight main characters. Uh, normally, Abraham is the most important, uh, and actually Abraham is just as long as, uh, as Joseph in number of chapters, but if you put them side by side, uh, Joseph's story is about 25% longer. Most scholars who are looking at this are, are thinking, well, uh, from a completely practical side, the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to miss this story. The Holy Spirit wants you to see what God is trying to do here. Um, and so as we're looking at it, no, this is the longest story in Genesis. Congratulations. We're doing it in five weeks. Um, next is uh, Joseph's life is the greatest and clearest picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. As people have studied this story and looked at both of them and the similarities between, there's over a hundred similarities between Jesus's life and Joseph's. Both were innocent, both were chosen, both were beloved by their father, both were sent by their fathers to check on their brothers, both were sold as slaves, both were cast in between two criminals, pronouncing the salvation of one and the death of another. Joseph forgave all those who looked to destroy him, as did Jesus. And both were rejected 
and ultimately thought to be killed by those who should have been most likely to accept them and the message they were bringing. And there's so many more. But the significance here is what we're seeing is God already had a plan way back with Joseph that would lead to Jesus and what was going on there. And then the final thing to know before we get into this is Joseph's life is a living testament to Romans 8, 28. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The story of Joseph is a picture of what God continues to do in Joseph's life as well as in each and every one of ours. So as you continue to hear today and the next several weeks, what I want you to be looking for is how does God continue to work for good in Joseph's life? And how is what God is doing right there in the immediate story leading to Jesus and the promise that Joseph is giving of a Savior that is coming? So now finally, let's look at chapter 37. Go ahead, yes, all the heads were going down. That's what I like to see. We're going to read the first four verses here. So Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, and this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so what you'll notice here is the Bible wastes no time in giving you just a look at the tension that is in Joseph's family. Uh, And for those of you who who are here today, I don't want you to raise your hand because I don't want the rest of the church to judge you. I don't want to know what's going on in your life. But if you watch soap operas, uh, this is one of the greatest soap operas there is in Scripture. But if it were on TV today with all the the junk, the dysfunction, and all the garbage that's going on there, you probably wouldn't believe what's going on. It's like, no, the producers went too far, reaching too much for this. There's no way it's believable. But just to give you a slight glimpse of what that is, Joseph had three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers, one stepsister, one actually related blood brother, not long lost. They knew of him right away. Uh, And all of these people were living in the same home, all at once, all at the same time, interacting in what I can only imagine was was hell at all times. I mean, these people were constantly competing for the attention of their father, Jacob, or their husband, Jacob, who, to add insult to injury here, was a generally godly man, but giving in to polygamy was also an incredibly passive parent, also an incredibly passive husband, was not willing to make super tough decisions. He would only do it if he were utterly forced to do so, and really what it was is, okay, I have to deal with this, so y'all just go away and I'll I'll figure it out. And then God was actually the one who came through and dealt with all his issues. Jacob was a terrible leader. And yet, God continued to work for good in those moments. In addition to that, Joseph's brothers were were kind of the worst. Um, They took turns being brutal, conniving, were were pretty openly immoral, and we'll hear a little bit more about why or what that looks like coming up here. But this is only the beginning. This is only the tip of the iceberg. Like, if you think of a dysfunctional family right now, and hopefully that's not yours, but in all reality, Thanksgiving is coming, and I'm sure most of you are thinking about the wonderful people you're so excited to bring into your home, and then those people that you don't love as much as them that are also coming. Or maybe you're going to their house, and you can just picture in your mind these people who, who for whatever reason, just rub you the wrong way. And they're supposed to be a part of your family. This is where Joseph is living right here and right now. 
But this is only the tip of the iceberg. You see, this is all coming before Joseph is sold into slavery, before he's been accused of rape, before he's being thrown into prison, before he's being faced to force the brothers who sold him into slavery and give them food because they're starving, before he's tasked with leading the greatest empire to to that time period, before he's asked to forgive, before he's asked to trust God, before he's asked to interpret these dreams, Joseph's already being formed with more than a few tiny, minuscule gas bubbles in his life. He's already being asked to face a ton, and in every right, he could become bitter. But what we're going to see is, through it all, God was working. Through all the dysfunction, through all the bitterness that surrounded him, through all the brokenness, through all the passivity, through all of the junk that was popping up in Joseph's life, God not only continued to work for good in his life, but continued to help him focus back on God. God broke through it all and prepared Joseph for what would later be coming. So what we see here is that Joseph is by far Jacob's favorite son. You see that in verses 3 and 4. Joseph was the child of Jacob's old age. Um, Back then, if you were an old guy, the assumption was you probably weren't producing many more kids. And yet, Joseph was able to have, or Jacob was able to have two more, Joseph and Benjamin. And so they were just his favorite. They were cherished. They're like, these are, you know, kind of little miracles, little blessings, little surprises. And so they took a lot of his love up there. But because of this favoritism, Joseph's brothers, they couldn't even look at him. They, they couldn't think anything nice to say. Whenever they'd look, all they'd see is just hatred. And again, going back to Thanksgiving, is there someone in your life who that's how you feel about them? Like, they just get everything. They're the one who's, who's dating that girl you like. They're the one with, with the great family. They're the one with all the kids. They're the one with all the promotions. They're the ones with all the money. They're the ones with all the cars. Or are you that person? Are you the one who seems to get everything? Are you the one who everyone seems to think deserves nothing that you have, and yet you continue to get all the great stuff? Where do you fall in this? And the whole point being... All of it is surrounded in bitterness. Whether you're the one who has everything or you're the one who wishes they did, bitterness is filling your life. Bitterness is becoming part of your identity. So for Joseph's brothers, the symbol of their bitterness came to a head when their father gave this technicolor dream coat to Joseph. For those of you who have kids in jam, they started learning about it last week and they're going to spend the rest of the month learning about Joseph, and so are you. So y'all can compare notes and see who, who gets to learn the most. But all of their bitterness just got summed up in this incredible gift that Jacob gave to his favorite son. And so th- this, this coat has a backstory. This coat kind of, I mean, it wasn't just given on a whim. If you ever have time, go back to Genesis chapter 35. Don't do it now. Stay on 37. But if you have some time later in the week, go back to Genesis 35, and what you're going to do is you're going to read a story about how the oldest son of Jacob lost his birthright. And what happened is this guy, Reuben, uh, Reuben, for some reason, got attracted to one of his father's wives and slept with her. And so when this was discovered, Jacob got so furious that he just pulled the birthright away. And what that means is, if Jacob were to pass away, Reuben was no longer the one who'd take over the family. Reuben was no longer the one who was assumed to step up into his father's shoes and continue to make sure the family didn't fall apart, die, or uh, anything, anything like that. 
And Jacob was so angry that he didn't just pull the birthright and give it to the next oldest. He pulled the birthright away from that entire section of his family. And he went to a different wife entirely and gave it to his 11th oldest son. And so he just told these other 10 guys, y'all can't live up to what I'm expecting. That was strike one. Strike two is giving Joseph this coat. And so we understand a little bit more. Back in those days, if you were going to wear a tunic um, and you were a son of someone who was old like Jacob, typically it would be sleeveless and it would cut off right above the knees. And the point of that is you're typically going to be working with animals. You know, you work with your flocks and everything. They're messy, they're dirty, and it's a lot easier to clean your skin than it is to clean your clothes. Uh, So you'd wear kind of less covering in order to show you were a working man. This coat that Joseph was given was long sleeves, and it went all the way down to the ankles. And basically what Jacob told the rest of his family in giving him this coat is, I don't expect this 17-year-old boy to work anymore. He's just going to make sure you're working. And he's 17. And for those of you who know 17-year-olds, probably not the most responsible. Probably not the people you're going to put all your, all your eggs in that basket for. So, strike two. And then strike three came... And to be fair, some of this was Joseph's fault, but at the same time, strike three came because one and two had already led to such an explosion of bitterness in these brothers' lives that they almost couldn't stop themselves. Strike three comes starting in verse 11, um, and kind of, well, I'm sorry, starting in verse 5 through verse 11, where Joseph starts to explain some dreams that he's had. And what he does is he talks to his brothers and says, guys, I just had these two dreams, so awesome, so great. What happens is there's, there's all these objects, there's 12 of them there, and mine is just standing above everyone else. And yours all bow down to me. Isn't that so cool? That's so great. How many of you are the oldest sibling? How many of you have ever had a younger sibling tell you, one day I will be your king? All right? And if they did, how many of you were like, dang, all right, he got me. I respect that. I, I, I bend to your will. No, you probably put him in the toilet, gave him a swirly, whatever, whatever you do to your siblings. How many of you are the youngest sibling? How many of you ever told an older sibling, I will be your king? How did that go? For most of us, if your younger sibling came up to you and said, you need to bow down to me, all right? Mom and dad said I'm in charge. You're probably going to make fun of them. Maybe you'll beat them up a little bit. Maybe you'll, you just got to remind them that they, the level of trash that they are. You got to make sure they understand where they fall in the real totem. But in this moment, what we see in, is an example of how Satan is using the faith of these brothers against them. What we see is Satan is utilizing the fact that these other 11 brothers are looking to Joseph and they understand that God is truly working through him. And rather than just say, no, that's our dumb little 17-year-old brother, we'll get him back later. They started to think through, how do we actually get rid of him? Because what God has just told us is he's going to be in charge. And their bitterness has led them to start looking at God's plan and deciding that it's, it's wrong. So we're going to take it into our own hands and do our own thing. And that's what happens with bitterness. And the only way they could look at Joseph was through these eyes of bitterness. So then as we get into verses 12 and 24, we see 
how it finally all comes together, how the three strikes have already worked their way through and the brothers have finally had it. So what happens is Jacob sends Joseph in his, his beautiful, ornate coat to go check on his brothers who are supposed to be out shepherding the flocks. He'd already brought a bad report back once, so the brothers are not excited that Joseph is being sent there. It takes him five days to find them, which is a problem in and of itself. But as soon as they see him coming off in the distance, the brothers plan on how they're going to kill him. The brothers decide, you know what, we're done with this, and now we have the perfect alibi. Little Joseph is out in the wilderness. A wild animal must have got him. They planned out exactly what they were going to tell their father. They planned out exactly what they were going to do. And they were ready to go through with it until the son who really kind of screwed all the rest of them over, Reuben, speaks up and says, you know what, I just, I don't think we can do that. There's an abandoned well over here. Let's let nature take care of it so that way it's not on our conscience. That way we don't have to kill him. That way we don't have to deal with it. I still want him gone, but I don't want to get blood on my shirt. And so, as Joseph is walking towards them, probably in a pretty good mood, you know, he's the favorite, as, as the favorite sibling usually is, bouncing all around, got a little skip in their step or whatever, probably ready to see his brothers. Like, guys, you know, how great is this? One day you're going to bow, bow down to me, I got this great coat, this is awesome. In no way expecting what's about to come. And so as he gets near to them, he's probably waving, like telling them how great they are. And they jump him. They start beating him up, probably taking all of their bitterness, hatred, and frustration out in that moment, getting a few cheap shots in, kicking him while he's down. They rip the coat off his back and they throw him into this abandoned well. And then what we find out later in chapter 42 is that the brothers sat down and had lunch. They just beat up their brother, they threw him in a well, and then they just sat around and ate. And what we see here is, is it doesn't sound like really any interaction took place, but in 42 what it tells us is that Joseph was screaming in fear, in pain, not knowing what was going to happen next. He was screaming out like, brothers, help me! And they were just sitting there ignoring him, having lunch. Their bitterness had taken them to such an extent that they couldn't even respond to the cries of their little brother. They had their plan in place. They were ready to just kill one of their own animals, to put blood on his coat. And then, to them, some, some fortune came their way. A merchant slave caravan was driving by and they figured out, you know what, why don't we get some money for our stupid little brother who thinks he's all that? And so they sell him making a profit off of his suffering, and they still go through with their plan, and they kill an animal, they put it on his new coat, turn it into their dad, and he's absolutely devastated. But what they've done is they've allowed the bitterness towards their brother, the bitterness that was created in the formative process, continue to, to, to spill over into their lives and dictate how they act. And instead of doing what God had called them to do, they decided to only do what they wanted. And so bitterness, similar to these little gas bubbles that came in Flight 232, they may seem completely harmless. And the reason that I say they may seem completely harmless is I can guarantee each and every one of you in this room has felt bitter at one point or another. You've looked at someone else and thought, why do they get that? Why do they get everything? Why do they get that car? Why do they get that much money? Why do they get that house? Why do they get those kids? Why do they get that, that, that awesome thing and all I'm left with is, is this garbage life that I have? 
all of us have felt bitterness. And the problem with that is what are you doing with it? Are you dealing with it? Are you just ignoring it? Because for the brothers, looking to their father, looking to the leader of their family, all they saw was a passive man who didn't want to deal with the conflict in front of him. And so they did the same thing. They just ignored it until it grew to such an extent in them that it exploded out into doing something horrible to their little brother. And so for us, how do you fight bitterness? How do you deal with bitterness? How do you accept that, yes, this is a sinful part of my life, but I can't just let it sit inside of me? You have to look to be more like Christ. You have to look to have the mind of Christ. And the first step in that is understanding a little bit more about what bitterness truly is. So there's three things that I want you to take away about bitterness to help you understand a little bit more about your enemy so as you're going out and trying to fight it, you can understand where it's truly headed and where it's from. First, bitterness is really anger at God. When you get bitter towards someone else, when you're feeling that, that hatred, your blood pressure's rising as they're talking about their amazing life, what you're really saying is that if God is truly in control, I'm only angry at him. Because if God is the one who is allowing this wonderful life to happen to this person who I don't think deserves any of it, that means God is giving that to them. And so you're really not angry at them. You're really not angry at the, the, the success that they're having. You're actually angry at God. Number two is bitterness is a denial of God's goodness. Not only are you angry at God, you're denying what he's promised to do for you. You're denying what Romans 8.28 tells us. God works in all things for our good. But if you're feeling bitterness and anger and hatred towards your brother, what you're actually saying is that you believe that the providential goodness of God to rule and overrule the events in your life, you believe that that doesn't matter. You've given up on what God has told you he's doing. You've decided that God must not have handled it correctly. So you're going to deal with it. That's what Joseph's brothers did. They decided that these dreams that God had given to their brother, no, that's not how it's supposed to go down. God, we're going to fix your mistake. And then number three, bitterness is a poison that can easily affect others. Most likely, all of Joseph's brothers were not angry at him to start. Most likely, it started with Reuben, and then maybe the next son felt a little bit of the, little bit of the slant on him. And then it spilled to more and more and more. And really, bitterness is something that's going to spread to everyone and anyone you interact with. It's a lot like pink eye. When you have it, anyone you touch, anyone you interact with, you know, I assume you're just high-fiving with your eyes, you're going to give it to them. Bitterness is the exact same thing. You're going to give it to someone else. You're going to spread it to everyone. Hebrews 12 even takes time to actually warn you against that and saying, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Your bitterness will not stick with only you. It will spread to your friends. It'll spread to your coworkers. It'll spread to your kids. It'll spread to your brothers and sisters. It'll spread to everyone and has the potential to turn into something disastrous. And so knowing these truths about bitterness will help you in battling against it. Because understanding who you're truly angry at 
gives you the opportunity to then interact with that person, to interact with your God, to interact with your Savior, who you have now just decided doesn't know enough about your life to actually help you dictate it. And so how we fight bitterness is to look to have the mind of Christ. You see, if Joseph was stuck at the bottom of the pit and as Christ was stuck on the face of the cross, both of them could have easily been sucked into bitterness thinking, how dare these stupid people do what they're doing? For Joseph, as he goes through all the rest of this junk in his life, as he becomes a servant to Potiphar, as he's accused of rape and thrown into prison, as he's forced to interpret dreams under threat of death if he gets it wrong, as he's put in charge of most of Egypt, as he's forced to face the brothers who sold him into slavery in order to help them so they and their family don't die, he easily could have been sucked into, let's just kill them all. I'm done with this. Jesus, as he's up on the cross, looking down at each and every one of our faces, looking down at everyone who was supposed to accept the message that he had, who was supposed to hear it and understand that they could not do this. So he did. He could have just ripped himself off of that cross and said, I'm done with you. Save yourselves. But what you notice in neither of these stories What you notice is both of them chose God's will. They chose to follow God's will. He'd already given them the faith. He'd already equipped them to do so. But rather than do what this world told them was totally appropriate, what they deserved, what they were entitled to do, to let that person who cut them off on the freeway know by driving by and giving them the finger. They chose to follow God's will instead of their own. And so trust that your God, your Lord, your Savior will do what he promises to do. And where we go to that is the one constant we have in our lives, the one thing that is not going to change, the one thing that is not going to quit, the one thing that is not going to give up, the one thing that will always be there for you no matter what sort of circumstances you're going through, and that is his word. And so hear the promise that he gives to us in Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil and bitterness with good. And then Philippians 2 tells us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who had every right to get furious with each and every one of us, to allow the bitterness around him, to allow the junk in the the formative process of his birth to come out when it mattered most. But instead, what he did is he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He chose to do what God had called him to do. He chose to die on the cross for you because what he knew is if he didn't, all of us were doomed. So rather than considering equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being made like each and every one of us, he was found to be in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
And then finally, to just remember what God tells us in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Guys, nothing shocks God. Nothing surprises him. The junk that pops up in our lives, the junk that pops up in your families, the junk that pops up in your work, with your kids, in your church, in your home, wherever it is, none of it shocked God. And so trust that he is still working for your good. And in those moments when you fail, and you will fail, we all fail, all of us have been sucked into bitterness at one time or another, understand that Christ has already paid the price for that. Understand that the true person you're bitter at is God, and as you're interacting with him, remember, go back to his word and be reminded of the promise that we have that we are forgiven for everything we've done and return back to the mindset of Christ to do for others way more than they would ever do for you. You are forgiven because of Christ's works. Nothing that happens in your life surprises God. And so trust him with everything you know Trust that he's working for good in your happiest moments and in your most bitter. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the consistency we have in your word and in our time with you. Lord God, we just ask that you would continue to show us the plans that you have for us, that you would continue to show us the love that you have explained to us in your word, that you've shown to us through your Son and that you would just continue to help us grow stronger in our faith in you. So that as these, these opportunities pop up where the temptation of bitterness and anger sneak into our lives, Lord, that you would just continue to fill us with your spirit, to help us have the mind of your son, and to look back to the truth that although they may have wronged us here, we have wronged you in such greater ways. Lord, help us to forgive as you have first forgiven us, and to remember that in all things you work for good. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.